You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Romans 15, Romans 15, uh, verses 5 through 7 are kind of, kind of going to be our focal point verses, but we're going to look at really even back at the very beginning of Romans 15 in just a few moments. But we are starting a new series today uh, that's going to take us through September, October, and uh, into November uh, called The One Another's. And The One Another's uh, is this, this series or this um, usage in Scripture where God has given commands to His church on how His church, how the community of believers um, should be in relationship to one another, but who we should be and how we should treat one another and so on and so forth. And it, it's this Greek word, alelon, which means reciprocal or mutual in action, and it's most commonly used in a group or a dynamic setting. So let me just kind of break that out for you a little bit more. When we encounter these passages of Scripture that we're going to encounter over the next couple of months, what this word means is that we are to be this to one another. That when we say, for example, get into the week of loving one another, forgiving one another, caring for one another, it, it does not mean that we should sit back as an individual and think, well, that's what you need to do for me. The word by itself is defined as reciprocal or mutual, meaning this is who we should be to one another. And this, this particular Greek word is used over a hundred times in New Testament writings. And only a handful, about 10, maybe 10 to 12 times, is it used in a one-on-one setting. Every other time it's used, it's used to describe a group or a, a community dynamic or setting. So it's designed to teach us what the church of Jesus Christ should look like. And how our relationships with one another should be. Now, I want to I do this really quick because we do have a vary of translations, of English translations. You have the one that you love and you love to read out of. And sometimes they don't always match up. And I just want to give you an example for just a moment. In Philippians 2.3, uh, the scripture says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The word others there in Philippians 2, 3 is this same Greek word that often gets translated to one another. So count others really can be count one another more significant than yourselves. But it's translated others in the King James, New King James, the ESV, the NIV, the NLT. But in the New American Standard, it translates it as one another. So why do I give you that little tidbit? Because depending on what you're reading from, your translation, over the next few months, I might read a scripture verse that says one another, and you might go, well, it says other or others in mine. Don't freak out. It's the same word behind it. It's the same meaning and intent behind it, whether it's other, others, or one another's. And we're going to take some time through these next few months and really try to look at each of them individually as as we can, but there are going to be some weeks like today where I actually combine a few too as well in the teaching because they just kind of go together. And it may be a, a situation where it's only used one spot in one place in that manner. And so lastly, before we read Romans 15, 5 through 7, let me just say this. Just be glad that I'm not picking a week to do this one. 
In Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So for all y'all Bible literalists out there, I expect to see the way you greet one another differently. We, we won't do a week on holy kisses, okay? We'll leave, we'll, leave that one, we'll leave that one between you and the Spirit of God. Romans 15, 5 through 7, if you want to follow along with me. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, I have in the bulletin, I have it marked down as the one another's of Scripture, peace and harmony. Because there's one place in the Scriptures, in Mark 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 50, as Jesus is teaching, he makes this statement, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's one space in the New Testament where this idea of having peace with one another is. Um, in 1 John 1, 7, John writes this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What does it mean to have fellowship with one another? Well, it means to be at peace with one another. It means to have an intimate, close connection in a group dynamic where you're at peace with one another and you're looking out for each other's interest over your own. And then Romans 12, 16, Paul writes earlier in Romans, live in harmony with one another, very similar to what he writes here. So we're kind of taking Romans 15 as our focal point, but those other verses are sort of mixed in with this teaching today, that when we're in harmony with one another, we will have peace. When we're in harmony with one another, we will have fellowship. And it will be pleasing to the Lord when that happens. In Romans 14, and I really encourage you to read Romans 14 this week. Take some time uh, in your daily reading and just read the entirety of Romans 14. <clears throat> what happens in Romans 14 is Paul goes through this, this big teaching on the strong and the weak Christian. And we're going to focus on that in just a moment. He makes this whole big, big teaching on the strong and the weak Christian, and, and it talks about issues of stumbling blocks, and talks about issues of hindrances uh, to other people's walk or their faith in Jesus Christ, and he talks in Romans 14 about p Christians passing judgment on one another because of these issues. And it, it, Romans 14, what he talks about is all of this, and it leads up to what he teaches us here in Romans 15. So again, I would encourage you, Take Romans 14 this week, read through it, so you can kind of get the background to what we're going to be talking about here today. So our first point really comes from 15 verses 1 and 2. I told you we'd go back to the very beginning of 15, so let's read verses 15, 1 and 2, and, and get into this first point today. We who are strong, Paul writes, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us Please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So the first context point of our time today is this, that the strong believer is obligated to the weak believer. What does it mean to be obligated? What does it mean to have an obligation? It means a duty. It means a commitment. It means an agreement that you, you agree that you have a responsibility in something. 
You sign a, a loan paper. You are declaring that you have an obligation to the bank to repay that as the loan agreement states. You're, you're obliged to do that. There, there's also a moral component here when it's used in the scriptures. And the moral component is that we have an obligation to one another to do or not to do something, depending on the situation. And so there's the issues here that Paul's dealing with from Romans 14 and kind of in its culmination in Romans 15 is that he describes two types of believers or two types of Christians, the strong and the weak. And he says the strong are to oblige the weak. What does it mean to be a strong Christian? All week as I've been preparing, I've just been substituting the word mature. I think that's maybe a better fit. What does it mean to be a mature Christian? It means you're possessing a moral strength or will, and it means that you're increasing in that. Basically what it means is that led by the Spirit of God, trusting in the Bible, trusting in the Word of God, trusting in the Spirit's leading, you are growing in your spiritual maturity to be able to discern good from evil, to know right from wrong, to follow Jesus and all of his commands and all of his paths. You are being sanctified is the other way the Bible puts it. Being conformed to the image of Jesus. What does it mean to be weak in this setting? Well, it means you're lacking in those areas. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have any. It doesn't mean you're completely absent of moral will or character, but it just means that you're lacking in some of those areas. And again, this week as I've been working through it, I've been using the word immature instead of weak. We, we know that the Bible speaks of immature Christians, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, I have longed to give you solid food, but you still need milk. You're not ready for spiritual steak yet. And and through both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he basically calls them out. You're acting like spiritual toddlers. And so we know the Bible speaks of a a strong, weak, a mature, immature Christian. And so in this setting, what Paul is saying is the strong or the mature Christian has an obligation to the weak or to the immature Christian. Now, just to pause for just a second, I really kind of think in this setting, the Bible presents us, as it so often does, a reversal from what our culture says. If you are more advanced in something in our culture and someone on your team or in your group or in your workplace or even in your family sometimes is, is, is less advanced, is spiritually, or, or not necessarily spiritually, but is weak or immature in that, what is our typical response? Hey, keep up. Come on. You get to where I am. And the Bible is not teaching it this way. As we'll see in just a moment, what the Bible is teaching is that the spiritual or the mature believer has an obligation not to say to the weaker and mature believer, hey, you get to where I am, but to go back and get that person and help them along in their journey. Gabriel is um, very, very good at at, uh, video games. And throughout the time in our family when we've had the game Mario Brothers, there have been multiple times where we've been playing as a family, and on more than one occasion, every member of our family, myself included, have said, Gabriel, I'm not playing with you anymore. Now, let me tell you why, because you might not be familiar with Mario Brothers. What happens in that game is if one character goes ahead and leaves everyone else behind and those characters drop off the TV screen, they die. 
And so Gabriel just goes, whoosh. Like, he's like, I don't know why you haven't cleared this field yet. I'm done. Right? And sometimes I think that's what we do with weak or immature believers. I don't know why you haven't grasped this yet. I don't know why, I don't know why you don't understand this yet. I don't know why this hasn't changed in your life yet. I'm gone. I'm done. And what Paul gives us here is the understanding that we have an obligation not to leave anyone behind. And so he says, how do we do this? How do we have this obligation? He goes on, verse 2, or really at the end of verse 1, end of verse 2. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So he gives us a couple things. One, that we are to bear with the failings of the weak. Failing is just a weak point or a flaw. It could be a weak point or a flaw in theology. It could be a weak point or a flaw in their moral thinking or conduct. It could be a weak point or a flaw just in how they express uh, their, their faith. It could be many, many things. In Romans 14, the weak points or the failings revolved around eating, whether or not they should be eating certain foods, drinking, whether or not they should be drinking certain things, and honoring some days, some holy days more than others. This was a pretty common thing in New Testament writing. In 1 Corinthians 8, the entire chapter that Paul writes there is devoted to this issue in the Corinthian church of whether or not they ought to eat a certain kind of food or not. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul uh, takes verses 16 through 23 and spends a whole section there in the book of Colossians talking again about food and drink and festivals and holy days and saying, don't let anybody look down upon you if you've settled in your heart that these things are okay. But, but here he takes a little bit of a different twist with it in that he, he's not necessarily talking about don't let anybody look down on you if you've settled it in your heart that it's okay, but don't leave behind people who have not settled it. Don't leave behind people who are not so clear on these issues. Now, we may not have those kinds of failings today, right? Like, I'm, I don't know when the last time was you picked up a steak at Kroger and wondered, hmm, was this offered to an idol and sacrifice? right? But we have issues, don't we? How people perceive media. And I don't mean news media, but I mean TV and movies and music and all those kinds of things. Oh, you should, shouldn't listen to that, should, shouldn't partake of that. Social media and its usage. How, how much we should be on it, how little we should be on it. What should we post on it? What shouldn't we post on it? We, we do have an issue throughout Christianity and uh, discussions about politics and social justice, discussions about alcohol use and whether everyone should be full abstainers or whether it's okay to have a little bit here and there and all of these discussions. And in all of these things, the strong believer who has set in his or her mind their, their biblical stance on those things is obligated to the weak. And the first way we're obligated to them, again, is to bear with them in their weakness in their failing. What does it mean to bear with someone? It means to endure with patience. It means to not be argumentative. No, don't be combative. Don't be contentious. Um, in 2007, there was this little indie film uh, made called Saved. and it, it starred Mandy Moore, Macaulay Culkin, and several other big names. And uh, It never really gained a lot of publicity. But I watched it then because... It was essentially a movie um, that centered around a fictional Christian high school and all the things that went on in and around that culture. And sadly, 
One of the telling points of it was the guys who wrote and produced the movie spent a lot of time in and around those settings and at Christian music festivals and so forth to get a firsthand idea of how people were treating one another as teenagers. And then they wrote a lot of that into their movie, which if you haven't seen the movie, let me just tell you, it's kind of a sad commentary. But there's, there's one point where Mandy Moore's character, who's kind of seen as this, you know, really, really strong, really mature Christian. Nobody knows all the issues that she's got because she keeps them really hidden. But she's having this combative moment with what would be a weak or immature Christian. And at one point, she takes the Bible and throws it at her and says, I am full of Christ's love. That is not bearing with. That is not enduring with patience. That is not uh, having conversations with people. We, we never will move another person deeper into maturity by arguing with them. You say, well, how, how can you say that? Well, the scripture says that. Ephesians 4, Paul writes this, uh, beginning in verse 1. I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul does not say, I urge you to go tell those people who don't know what they're doing or thinking that they're wrong. He doesn't say, go tell them and argue with them and have quarrels with them. He says, in humility and gentleness, with patience, instruct. In Galatians 6, another one of Paul's writings, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression or a sin, you who are spiritual, and that's another word there that kind of means this mature, this strong Christian, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Of gentleness. Listen, the church has a gentleness problem. Because we want to yell and scream and fight and argue and quarrel. And nowhere does the scripture give us that opportunity. Not with outsiders, not with insiders. Instead, we're to bear one another up when it comes to the brothers and sisters. He, he says there at the end of verse 2, we're also to build them up. I'm going to come back to what's in the middle here in just a moment. But he talks about not pleasing ourselves and pleasing others. He says we do this to build them up. To build them up in this setting is to bring something to completion that's already started. It was a, it was a phrase that would have been used in Jesus' day of someone seeing a building that was partially under construction, partially finished, and that person then going and engaging in that to help finish that project. So it would be you today looking across the street or at your neighbor's house or whatever, and maybe they're building a garage or a barn, and you see it's 30% done, and you going, I'm going to go and give my time and give my effort and give my skills, and I'm going to help them finish this. And so the, the understanding here is that the strong or mature believer is to bear with the failings of the weak and to also build them up, meaning help them complete what God has started in them. I want you to just think for that. Think about that for just a moment. I know, I know Paul says that God will complete a good work in you, which he has started, and I believe that fully. But what Paul is also saying here is that in the body of Christ, each and every person has a responsibility to the other to help build you to spiritual completion. You and I are not just responsible for our own walk. You and I are responsible for all brothers and sisters as they are responsible for you. 
And so right in the middle of these two commands, he says this, don't please yourselves, but please your neighbor. In other words, don't use your spiritual maturity, don't use your spiritual strength where you are as a Christian for your own purposes or your own good, but do this to bring others along in their maturity in Christ. Warren Wearsby in his commentary stated it this way, a person's spiritual maturity is revealed by his discernment or his wisdom. He is willing to give up his rights that others might be helped, and he does this not as a burden, but as a blessing. Let me say that again. He is willing to give up his rights that others might be helped. See, the strong or the mature Christian does not say, I have the right to do this, and so I'm going to do it. Particularly if whatever the it is is harmful to another brother or sister in Christ. If you look in Romans 14, uh, verses 13 and 15, it should just be on the next page to your left or maybe on the same page, depending on how your Bible's structured. But Paul helps us understand what he means here in verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying to the church at Rome, and he's saying to us, I know in my heart, in my spirit, by the Lord Jesus Christ, which means he's obviously spent some time praying about it, studying the words of Jesus, studying the teaching of Jesus. I know that nothing, meaning food, is unclean. So Paul says, I know I have a right to eat whatever I want. But what does he say? But to the one who thinks it unclean, it is. And then he says, so if you go on and do that, and a brother or sister in Christ thinks it, you are destroying them by your rights and by your freedom. Well, now, just, just contemplate on that for just a second. Because I understand we live in a culture where we want to say things like, but it's my right. It's my freedom. I can put whatever I want to on my Facebook page. It's mine. I can go see whatever movie I want to because I'm able to do it. I can partake in whatever activity I want to because I have the right and the freedom to do it. Very rarely, I'm guessing, do any of us go, but I wonder if this is going to negatively harm a brother and sister in Christ. And sad to say, my guess is, if we do ask that, we may end up getting to the point where we just say, well, they'll be all right. This is my right. This is my freedom. I get to do this. Paul says, don't do that at the expense of destroying another person. Now, before we move on to point two, I want to say this about strong and weak. Number one, to to understand these scriptures and to understand how it applies to us means we have to have some introspection about ourselves, right? And we have to ask the Lord. We have to ask the Spirit of God, am I strong or am I weak? Am I mature or am I immature? And quite frankly, if you're like me, probably what the Lord's going to say is, well, here's some areas you're really mature in. Here's some areas where you're a toddler. 
But we have to ask the Spirit of the Lord to give that to us so that we know then what we need. And then secondly, we have to admit, even if the Spirit of the Lord comes back and says, you're, yeah, you're really a strong, mature believer or you're really strong, mature in these areas, we have to then have this acknowledgement as well. But the reality is we're all very weak. Because as strong and mature as you may be in one area of your life, you're never going to reach full maturity on it this side of heaven. And so it takes a discussion among ourselves internally to say, I'm weak in this area. Uh, I'll be 54 in October. I've got 20 plus years of ministry under my belt. And I've got two or three pastors that, well, I was going to say I got them on speed dial. Nobody uses speed dial anymore. But um, I've got two or three pastors that are older chronologically than me and older in ministry experience than me that I call on a routine basis and say things like, hey, this is going on. A, I need your wisdom and guidance. And B, I need you to help me figure out why it bothers me so much. I need you to help figure out where my weakness is in this situation. And they bring me along lovingly. They bear with my weaknesses. They build me up. And that's what we should be doing for one another. Secondly, he says Christ is our example of this. He's our example of this selfless living that he's describing here in verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He points to the person of Jesus as being our example of someone who bears with the failings of the weak and encourages and does not do for himself but pleases others. And if we just think about Jesus' life, this is very evident. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. He came to fulfill the law, meaning that he came to be the perfect human being that no one could ever be. And he came to fulfill the prophets, meaning to be the Messiah that they all spoke of. And he came to do that. And he did not serve himself in doing so. Think about the New Testament descriptions and the writers. They say things like, though he was rich, he became poor. Though he was equal to God, he did not grasp hold of that, but humbled himself even to death on the cross. Though he knew no sin, he became sin. They, as they write about Jesus, they write about this selfless Jesus who, who took time to endure the failings of the weak around him who took time to say to the disciples for the umpteenth time, here's the deal, I'm going to die. And you still don't get it, but I'm still going to tell it to you until you figure it out. Or to say to the Pharisees, or to say to the religious of his day, here's the deal, you're operating in this capacity, the kingdom of God operates in this capacity. Or to say to those who are around him who wanted to be judgmental and cast judgment and cast punishment on people, this is the way you used to do it, this is now the way of the kingdom. He endured for three long years and then spiritually now endures with us forever and says to us, you don't have it right. He becomes our example of this selflessness. In Romans 8, Paul talks about this this whole measure of God's plan, and he uses words like foreknowledge and predestined and justification. And there's a lot of theology mixed in and all that, but there's one phrase in verse 29 right in the middle of all that where he says this, that God's done all this, that we might be conformed to the image of his Son. Fancy language to say that Christians are supposed to look like Jesus. 
And, and I just have to ask you, like, do we? Do I? Like, my, my two biological kids, everywhere they go, somebody that says, you look just like your mama or just like your daddy, right? Does, does, does somebody say that of me? I mean, you look just like Jesus. Or am, or am I pleasing myself? Am I not enduring? Am I not bearing? Am I not building? Am I not doing any of these things? Verse 3, after he points to Jesus, he points us to God. Or point 3. Verses 15, 5 through 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We might think that the goal of harmony is that we all just kind of get along. <laughs> but what Paul tells us here is really the goal of harmony within the church is that God gets glory from it. The goal of harmony and peace and fellowship is that God receives glory from our actions. And so he kind of comes this way, and it's not a question that he asks, but I think it's a question that's worth asking as we've read through the first five verses. Where does the power to live this way come from? Where does the power come from to bear with one another, to endure with one another, to be gentle with one another, to be humble with one another, to build one another up, to not please myself, but to please someone else, to live like Christ? Where does that power come from? And he gives us that answer beginning in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. In other words, he says, where does that power come from? If you're asking the question, it comes from God. And I want you to get how God gives this to us. He uses that word that translates out in English that God will grant it to us. The word grant means someone who has something, giving something to someone who has nothing and not expecting them to give it back. Some of you are maybe like myself and my wife this time of year where you're waiting for your child in college to email you or text you and say, I'm getting this much money in Pell Grants, right? And you love seeing that. Why? Because you don't have to pay Pell Grants back. And why is it called a Pell Grant? Because whether or not you agree with this or not is irrelevant. This is the way it works. The government looks at my W-2 and says, oh, you don't have very much. We've got some. Here's some for your daughter so she can get an education. So the God of endurance and encouragement looks at us and says, oh, you don't have very much. But I've got it all. I've got all the endurance, I've got all the encouragement, I've got all that you need to live in harmony with one another, dear son and daughter. And so Paul says the God of endurance and encouragement will grant us this ability. And I want you to look at how those words match up with back in verses 1 and 2. It says the God of endurance. Remember we talked about bearing with one another? What does it take to bear with one another? Endurance. Right? Gabriel running off the screen and saying, see ya, is not endurance. It's I'm going to get to where I'm going to get, and I don't care if I bring any of you all along with me. Bearing with one another is we're all going to get there together. 
And what do you need for that? You need endurance. Uh, at the end of verse 2, what are we doing? We're building one another up. What does it say? God gives us encouragement. Encouragement. He gives us the encouragement to then pass along and disperse to one another. And he does all this. Why? That we might live in such harmony with one another. What does it mean to live in harmony? What does the word harmony mean? Uh, again, it, it might come off that it's kind of like unity and peaceful, and it has those aspects to it. But this word means to set your mind in a direction or a perspective. It's used negatively, for example, in Matthew 16, when Peter is saying to Jesus, you're not going to die, and, and, and you don't have to worry about going to the cross. And Jesus turns around and looks at Peter and says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but to set the things of man. In other words, you are not in harmony, Peter, with God's plan. And so this is what the word harmony means. It means to, to have a, a mindset or a direction or a perspective. And so there's two places, there's lots of places that word harmony is used, that word mindset is used. But there's only two places here and then in Romans 12, 16, which I read earlier, where Paul again talks about us living in harmony with one another. In those two places in the New Testament, Paul adds a word before the word that means mindset, and it's a word that means a person related by blood or marriage. And so essentially what Paul says is, you who are of the same family should have the same mindset. And how are we related by blood? We're related by blood because Jesus' blood has saved us all. How are we related by marriage? Because we are all part of the bride awaiting the bridegroom to come back. And so Paul uses this really unique word to say it's, you shouldn't just be in harmony because God wants the church to be in harmony. You shouldn't just have the same perspective because God thinks that's the best way for the church to operate. You should do this because you're family. And then because you're spiritual family, you should have the same spiritual perspective. Now let's talk about biological families and dysfunction for just a moment. There's lots of reasons biological families encounter dysfunction, but probably the main reason is this. Everybody wants to go their own separate way, don't they? Everybody in the family has the best idea of what the family should do or the decisions the family should make. And sometimes they're really minuscule and they don't really, they're not really that important. Like today when you leave here, if you're going to go decide to eat and, you know, four of you want to go four different places, that's dysfunction, but that's dysfunction that can be handled, Right? But sometimes that dysfunction is really ugly. And sometimes that dysfunction tears families apart. And sometimes because of the dysfunction, fathers don't talk to daughters and mothers don't talk to sons and brothers don't talk to sisters. And at the heart of that dysfunction is it's every person having their own mindset, their own perspective, their own direction. And what Paul says to us is in a spiritual family, we can't have that. We have to live in harmony, and God will grant it to us. Why will he grant it? What's the goal? Look again at what he says there, beginning in verse 6. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He gives two points here. That you may with one voice glorify God. What do you and I do with our voice? Well, we praise and we worship and we speak, and we teach, and we preach, and we encourage, and we have conversations with. But what happens in all those things when we all have different mindsets? 
What happens in all those things when our perspectives aren't singular as a body of Christ? God doesn't get glory there, does he? He says, welcome one another. And that welcome, in, in English, I'm, you know, I, when I first read it and studying through it, I was like, well, you know, like somebody comes in the door, you welcome them, right? But it's really a word that means an invitation into life. It's a word that means to accept and to receive. And so Paul says, welcome one another in harmony. Receive one another in harmony into your life and you into theirs. Again, it's describing intimacy. It's describing a relationship that goes beyond just being a church member at a fellow church. And he does all that as part of this understanding that we do that as weak and strong and we accept strong, we accept weak and immature. And we do that because Jesus has done that with us. Jesus, who is fully strong, Jesus, who is fully mature, Jesus, who lacks nothing, looks at me and looks at you and goes, oh, yes, you're weak. Oh, yes, you're immature, but I welcome you into my life. Not only do I welcome you into my life, I give you my life. Paul says we are to do this that God might receive glory. As we close today, I've got... Lots of pastor friends in lots of different places in this nation. <clears throat> and I've had lots of conversations with them over the last two to three years. Some text, some email, some face-to-face. And I'll, I'll just tell you, across the board, they're tired. It's been a long two, three years for pastors. And the biggest reason it's been a long two, three years for pastors is this. That this idea of harmony and single perspective has gone away the last two or three years. People get mad over how you handled COVID or how you didn't handle COVID. People get mad over what you think about the, the politics or what you don't think about the politics. People get mad over this social issue or that social issue. And, and I've heard from some of you, as I've heard some of these pastors talk about in their churches, that they'll have people that come up to them and say, man, preacher, I used to really feel the presence of God here. I don't feel it as much anymore. Well, guess what? You won't feel the presence of God where we are not in harmony in our perspective. You just won't. We won't have the blessing of God where God's people stand by and go, well, I know you think this way about that way, and I think this way about this way, and we're just going to have to part ways or agree to disagree or talk about each other behind each other's backs or whatever the case may be. And Paul says we live in this harmony so that with one voice we would glorify him and we would welcome one another into fellowship, bearing with one another, building one another up, that God might receive glory. The point of all of what we do as a church is not about me or you. It's about him. It's about this Jesus who is our example of selflessness. It's about this Jesus who came not to be served but to serve. Who came not to do his own will but do the will of the Father. And I just, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the American church is in trouble Because we are not in harmony. Complaints come with the job. I, I get it. I accept it. It's something a long time ago as a pastor I knew I was going to get. 
But I've said this before, and I'll say it again today. You know one complaint I've never heard in 22-plus years? I've never had a church member come to me and say, why aren't we baptizing more? Boy, I would love to get that complaint. Because what that would tell me is in that church member's heart, they recognize that there's lost people that are going to hell that don't know Jesus, and we're not doing enough about it. That's harmony. That's single-mindedness. That's perspective. That the goal and the cry of the church is not what can it do for me, but the goal and the cry of the church is what will we be for the kingdom of God. And if it means sometimes I don't get my way, if it means sometimes I don't get my right, then all the more glory to God. Because perhaps, just perhaps, what that means is when we come into harmony in those moments, the kingdom will be made known. The kingdom will be made present. Let me just ask you as we go into our closing time today, what's your perspective? What's your mindset? Are Are you visibly looking at one another and going, can I bring somebody along with me? Can I help build them up? Can I help bear with them in humility and gentleness in their struggles and and bring them more to maturity in Jesus? All that's just called discipleship, by the way. (laughs) Or is our perspective and our mindset, well, if I don't get my way, then I'm just done. God will not be glorified in that. The beautiful thing about it is, <clears throat> he's not done with us. He's not. He's not. We will be willing to let him have us. If we will be willing to let him have our mindset, our perspective, we will be willing to bear with one another and build one another up and encourage and do all the things that Paul's talked about here today and all the things that we'll talk about over the next few months. God will be ready to do something great in our midst. Oh, that we would let him. Oh, that we would let him. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.